Hello and welcome to the Lixnaw 1752 podcast with Shane Connolly. Hello. Uh, actor. Dick Hello Wolf, again. <laughs> the boss. Yeah, thanks. And um, me, James Moran, the podcaster. This is our third episode, Dick, is it? Yeah, this is episode number three. But it's our first interview. Yeah, we recorded this before the first two. Um, mm-hmm. Will we tell people why? We better now. now that <laughs> oh, it. no. Well, well okay, well... well we, we made a mistake, made some technical errors. The first time we recorded this, we, I, mostly me, made a lot of issues with the microphone and I was speaking in different directions and the sound was coming in and out. And then we, we asked John to do it a second time and then James forgot to press the record yeah, button. Yeah, because Dick unplugged his internet halfway through. And then, and then, <laughs> and then, and then, uh, well, we decided we, we went back and we couldn't ask John to do it a third time. Mm. Uh, he'd been very kind to do it with us twice. And um, so we've does, used... The does f- he know that we're not using the second one? Yeah. Does he? Yeah. He told him? <laughs> I'm going to tell him no. <laughs> <laughs> Before we print this out. That immediately time. sounded like that yeah was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you dug deeper into that. Because that, that sounded... Th- yeah. I mean, if this well, goes well... No, no. <laughs> yeah, maybe it'll be like, thank God they used the first one, you know? Yeah. Um, um, so apologies to, to, to folks that the audio is is not pristine, but it's certainly listenable and the content is excellent. Mm. Um, I think the interview with John is, a, is very, very good. I, we've thought, I've thought a lot about it a lot as, a, as we've been making the play. Well, that's a big claim. Why, why is that the case? You've thought about this interview a lot while working on the play. Yeah. I think his kind of description of the class relations kind of confirmed what I expected, but also it's, it's it's quite vivid, you know. And so I think John has a kind of sympathy towards the what are called the aristocracy in Ireland or the um, the gentry. He feels that they were very misrepresented and hard done by when they became vilified as the oppressors and the only oppressors in Ireland. And he feels that the middle class, the kind of the big farmers bear a lot of responsibility. Um, he kind of outlines why he thinks that in this interview. He also makes the point that we know so little, uh, especially about the poor or the cottier class, the people who are most affected by the famine and the various economic woes, such as immigration and poverty and so forth. And and we know very little from what their lives are like. Shane, what, what do you make of that analysis? Had you heard of that idea before that the aristocracy had been vilified? Does that make sense to you? Or rather, what did you make of that when John was saying? I think thinking about it, I, I suppose I, I was very much on board with vilifying the aristocracy. Mm, me because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still because vilify, that, I still vilify yeah. them. But anyway, and I, I think in some ways, I, st- I still think they do need to take responsibility for for what what they did. You know, they they yeah. came over and you know, in the very shortest and most uh, nationalistic way, they stole the land. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that's that's a truth, and that's that's something that needs to be dealt with. But I think what he, he's trying to get at is that there was a, a there was a shared blame as well. Like it's very mm. easy to just look back and go, well, the woes of the Irish people were because of the aristocracy, were because of the English landlords, and in some ways that is true. But also, their maybe day to day woes were were put on them by other Irish people, by large farmers, people like people who had become large farmers and were, for the most part, Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. And they also, you know, op- oppressed 
the people under him and, and made their lives very, very difficult. So there's a yeah. blame to be shared around. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and, it's and, not and, simple. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. You call these the Healy Ray class, you were saying. Yeah, I, I, I think he refers to it as that yeah, at one point. Yeah. But I, I don't. I don't. I think the yeah. Healy Rays are a scapegoat. <laughs> they're a, they're a, I think our entire middle class in Ireland has, for instance, like direct provision. You know, there's this thing in Ireland, oh, we were once immigrants and we're not racist and so forth. And, and very clearly, it is a problem in this country. And also even the whole Catholic Church has, has a lot of responsibility for for uh, the treatment of the most vulnerable in this country, you know? I mean... Mm. What does that have to do with the 18th century? The, the same class that, that did that in the 20th century in Ireland, and maybe even the same mentality, also in the 18th century, go back that far... They were stamping on the necks of poor people all the time, you know. Mm. At the same time, you know, they were like championing nationalism and having their own parliament and so forth and Catholic emancipation. And then they were stamping on the necks of vulnerable people. So it's a complicated story and way more interesting, if you want to be uh, just even neutral about it, way more interesting than the, the simplified story of an Irish people who sought for generation after generation the independence of their nation, you know. Mm. That's a very simplistic and not accurate story. Much more interesting, the truth. So will we get into it then, off the back of that? It's an interesting, I think, debate, I suppose. Um, there's, there's a new book published in Kerry quite recently, and it's quite interesting, that whole question of colonial culture and how it was brought into Kerry and when did it start? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a very interesting debate. I mean, you, you could push it back to the 11th and 12th centuries, probably when the Fitzmaurices came first. Yeah. Um, and like, what is quite interesting is people often think there was this big chasm in say 1660 or the Cromwellian period, but in actual fact, a lot of the things that were, like private ownership, policing, all that sort of thing were, were already in place in Kerry. I mean, it's quite interesting if you look up the 1641 um, rebellion, the, the, mm-hmm. the accounts of that in Kerry and, and Protestants in Kerry who lost um, property. It's quite clear that there was a very strong capitalist culture already in place that seems right. to have coexisted with an older Gaelic culture. Um, so I think, you know... It, there was never a kind of a blank canvas. Like it, there was always kind of an accumulation of things over centuries. And then there was occasional spurts of activity, I suppose, um, yeah. you know, that you'd see in advance in, in a generation that might have taken 100 years before that. So I think you kind of need to see like Snow as part of a kind of continual development of North Kerry over a period of six, 700 years. Yeah. Okay. And I, I had quite... What, I always was fascinated by, you know, the famous 18th century writer, Charles Smith, who wrote that book on, on Kerry, on his visit to Kerry in 17, I think 1750s. And he described Lixnaw in it. And that's where I first saw this description of Lixnaw, this, this description of this house with canals. And then I used to look up maps and see pretty much nothing. And it wasn't until about maybe 20 years ago when I went out to Lixnaw, uh, not expecting to find anything, and then suddenly I, I came across the ruins of the old court, 
mm-hmm. and uh, shall I dare I say trespassed, trespassed, <laughs> <laughs> and had a walk around. And then when I was looking at the landscape around it, uh, it literally took my breath away because it was yeah. clearly I saw the, what Smith was talking about, this massive landscape, baroque, early 18th century domain landscape that has been pretty much forgotten yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. is extremely important and is probably one of only three or four that survives in the country. Mm. You know, so I, I think um, how you interpret Lixnaw, what your feelings are about it, you know, all these various kind of uh, question marks over the Anglo-Irish or whatever you wish to call them, you know, regardless of all that, it is still a very important landscape. And I, mm. I think, um, you know, I, I wrote the article kind of tried to bring attention to it. And I think it certainly has worked. <laughs> there seems to be a lot more people interested in the landscape now. Um, and I think, I, I, interestingly enough, I think if it's properly presented, it, it, it offers modern Lixna an opportunity to kind of re, represent itself to the world. Yeah, yeah. So, which is quite an interesting take because, of course, that's what the Arabs were trying to do in the 18th century. So, um yeah, it's it's it's, it's it's really, really a fascinating landscape. And I only read recently, I think, in one of the Kerry newspapers about this ambition to rebuild the famous monument, which was blown yeah. up in the 1950s, <laughs> and which led to quite a lot of local anger. Um, because there was an attachment to this this monument. Um, it wasn't seen as some symbol of oppression, but very much... Well, it was by some, but by others, it was seen very much as the part of the local landscape. And I think there's still a lingering anger over how that was done. So it was quite interesting to see how history is kind of reinventing itself, mm. you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it, 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 the sag of Lixnag <laughs> continues, I suppose, mm. was quite interesting. On, on that point of, of oppression, that some people do think or see it as a symbol of oppression, John, uh, what, what's your sense of the time? What, is there much of a sense of oppression at the time when the when the um, the family is moving in and making it the court? Again, you see, I think we're such a step removed from it, and mm. so much of our interpretation of the Anglo-Irish has been coloured by the land war of the eighteen eighties, which was probably one of the most successful, dare I say, propaganda campaigns of modern times, which basically cast all of them, regardless whether they were good, bad, or indifferent, whether they were Protestant or Catholic or Quaker, all in the same boat. And our entire interpretation of them, allied to what happened during the famine, has colored our, our view of that class, I suppose, yeah. um, over, over the centuries. You know, were they oppressive? Of course they were in certain regards. I mean, they didn't manage and control this amount of land without being oppressive. I mean, that's the nature of an elite anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to go beyond like snow. I mean, if you can look at England, you can look right to the, to the, to the borders of Siberia, all these great estates, great houses, great palaces, great cathedrals, great art collections were all built on you know, the wealth and the, on the back of others. <laughs> so, yeah. like, uh, at what stage do you say, you know, it's oppression or whether it's, you know, it's, 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 you can go down that route, but then I think you're losing out so much else that happened in, in part of, of, mm. the, of the other thing. I suppose what's interesting about Ireland is because it was this colonial elite, uh, effectively, um, albeit now with, 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 in Kerry particularly with Gaelic attributes, um, 
can you penetrate between the top layer? It's very difficult to do it by the early 18th century because they left the let the land was essentially let to middleman tenants who are often prominent, say Protestant freeholders, and then they in turn let to the kind of the farming elite. So the Earl himself and his family would have had very little day-to-day contact with the people actually tilling the soil. Mm. Um, you know, it's quite interesting if you look at the Fitzmaurice papers, or not Fitzmaurice, the Crosby papers, mm-hmm. you know, it's quite clear that, you know, there was such a kind of a hierarchy of people under the, 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 the head of the household that he rarely, if ever, encountered actual people tilling the soil. Mm. So, you know, at what stage were they oppressive or where did oppression come in? You know, I mean, I've studied another estate in great detail, the Godfrey estate in Milltown, and which was effectively a Cromwellian estate. And it's quite clear that what they did, there wasn't this massive disruption. So the people that were there before the Cromwellian settlement continued holding the land after the Cromwellian settlement. And in fact, you can actually trace some of the families that still hold the land today, the farms, right back to the early 18th century, which is an extraordinary mm. expanse of time. Um, so these might like, be your smaller, like the people who had a, a parcel of 35, yeah, 100 acres. Yeah, they, they would be what we call the kind of the big farmers, you yeah. know. And um, what people tend to forget that the landlords and the big farmers had the same vested interests and often worked kind of, I won't say exactly in harmony with each other, but, you know, they kind of worked together, I suppose, in mm. some regards. And uh, it was always the small farmer and the cottier and the labourer, who was the one who was really disadvantaged and who was really, I suppose, suffered from oppression um, from both, you know, his Irish, I suppose, superiors, but also then, of course, the, the, the whole colonial apparatus as well. So yeah. it's a very difficult thing to measure oppression. And yeah. every state is very different in how it was managed. And what you find is that every generation brought in a new way of interpreting things. So one Earl could have managed the state with an iron fist and his successor could have taken a completely laissez-faire attitude, mm. delegated responsibility to the agent and spent his time living the high life in London or uh, Paris, which of course is what happened in respect of the third Earl of Kerry. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, it, 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 there's, you, it's very hard to generalize, I find. The mm. more you kind of delve into these families and how they managed the states, what they did, what different generations did, what their attitudes were, you know, there's no simple kind of, I suppose, catch-all mm. uh, interpretation of them. Okay. I guess that's what that's kind of what I was getting at with the question. I, I'm very interested. We can we know a lot about the life of the court and the life of the the rich guys and the rich people and the rich families and everything. But I'm I'm wondering with the the the, the laborers and the cottiers and things like as you were talking about, did they even notice? Did much change for them? Were they they were they even aware of what we would consider oppression, or were they just happy with their lot? They were just doing their work, and the the guy happened to change who they were paying their money to or renting the land from. Yeah, I mean, again, you see, it, it's it, there's a whole kind of I suppose underclass there that we know we know we get glimpses of mm. over time, but it's very hard to find exact. I mean, our history, I suppose, effectively is coloured by the fact that the major archives that survive are the colonial government or the Dublin government uh, here in Dublin, 
or the great papers of the great houses and great estates. You won't have a collection from a local for Cotty or a farmer who yeah, couldn't probably read or write. So mm-hmm. our history is, is skewed anyway in the first instance, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I was able to write that article on links now because I had access to the Crosby papers because I went over to to Bowood House in Wilshire and I was able to look at some of the archives there. But you can be certain there's few, or I, in fact, I think there's hardly any letters in the Crosby collection, which is quite extensive, that come from the ordinary cottier who yeah. work there. What I can say is, you know, it all depends on how an estate was managed because you have this, basically all estates in Ireland were up to roughly the famine, well, up to the late 18th century, were managed by middlemen, which is very rare that you've got a landlord who managed an estate by directly letting two tenants. It was just too cumbersome, too awkward, too much hassle. So he basically would let his entire estate to middlemen who in turn let it to big farmers who in turn let plots to the underclass. That's basically how rural society worked. Um, And then within that whole level, there was the idea that there was one farm farmer, you know, managing his farm and his few cows and sitting next to another farmer is not exactly how rural society works. I mean, for example, you'd have herders who'd manage a whole herd of cattle belonging to various farmers and they'd bring them up the mountains to graze them during the summer and bring them down to the valleys during the winter, all this sort of thing went on. There's very much a kind of a communal nature, I suppose, of living at the lower levels. From what glimpses I have seen, um, I'm not particularly familiar with what happened maybe in North Kerry, but I, I'm speaking from Mid Kerry, mm-hmm. but I presume it wouldn't be much different. Um, if you go to the next tell us level, more about that. Like would that would that involve like just sharing food? Yes, sharing, eating, sharing. eating together, sharing yeah. homes. Exactly. I mean, like let's face it, that continued right up to the 1950s and 60s in rural Ireland. This, you know, sharing the combine harvester, sharing the horse, sharing the food, yeah. all this. So that that tradition of sharing goes way, way back, way, way back. And you get glimpses of it in leases. And what always used to fascinate me was you'd, you'd find a lease written in English, um, and then suddenly you're reading down through it, and you'll see, you know, that, you know, Martin O'Dalic uh, and Connor something or other has a right to graze so many cattle in such and such a field for so many months of the year. And straight away you're getting a glimpse into that kind of communal I suppose, set up of local farmers coming together, bringing herds together on, I suppose, kind of commonage. And, you know, there's kind of a whole culture there that we don't really know much about. I mean, a lot of people know about the whole Gale Top parts of Kerry and the survival of Irish, but it often fascinates me that there's a whole swathe of our history that we, we know very little about, except in very general terms. And except where there is actual archival records. And, you know, you get, as I say, glimpses now and again in documents, but it's very hard to be precise exactly how things work. Um, like what is quite interesting to me, and again, I'm only kind of, my focus on Lixnaw is very much the, the old family and creation of the domain of Lixnaw. And I suppose where I've done more work is in terms of the, the Godfrey estate near Milltown, where, I, I mean, it's quite clear that right up, until nearly the early 19th century, a very, very, I suppose, feudal sort of culture survived underneath the layer of the, the middleman. And if you only really see the landlord directly intervening in the landscape and in the lives of people, really from the 1780s onward. Now, I can only speak for one estate, 
yeah. other historians could come on and say, well, actually, this happened in such and such an estate much earlier or much yeah. later. Um, you know, but I think there is kind of you see you see you see a general move towards this kind of more direct involvement. There was kind of a whole re-emphasis on, for example, you know, spreading the, the Protestant religion. I suppose introducing English as the spoken language, as the written language. This is happening uh, yeah. after 1780, kind of. Yeah, you you, you see a real kind of drive during that period, and then of course the, the famine then occurs in the 1840s, and that decimated the lower class. Not the big farmers. And what's quite interesting, I always think, and people forget this, is that a few years ago, about 10 years ago, correspondence turned up in Boston University, um, written from a man who lived in Milltown in Kerry. It's back to his son, our two his sons and daughters who were in America during the famine. Quite a remarkable series of letters. Not once was the landlord mentioned in those letters as evicting people or doing anything particularly uh, horrible. It, he's, the, thing pointed, the finger of blame was pointed at the big farmers. They were the ones who threw the cottiers on the side of the road, ejected them from the farms. And, you know, it, that whole history of that kind of conflict between the lower classes, I suppose in the middle of farming classes, is something we've kind of forgotten about. Yeah. And we've always seen it as kind of this, this argument between the, the landlord and his agent at the top and the big farmer in the middle. But there was a, a whole series uh, of conflicts at the lower level, which we, you know, people kind of tend to forget about, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the kind of faction fighting and the local societies, uh, you know, secret societies and things like that, like the white boys and all these, a lot of it was actually to deal with these local conflicts, between those who had property and farms and those who hadn't. So, as I say, there's a, there's a whole um, area of, of Kerry history, I suppose, and Irish history that we've only kind of started to delve into properly in the last 10, 15 years and move away from this traditional idea of it being a conflict between the landlord and his agent and, and his tenants. It's a much more nuanced uh, situation. And would it be fair to say, I mean, this is this is kind of touching on what, what's interesting for me is that it seems that this family kind of straddles, especially the first heir to the third heir, kind of straddles a change from the feudal system into into the cap, more capitalist one yeah. that happened around 17. And this is happening worldwide as well. Yeah. So we're not trying to say that this is some uh, absurdity of Irish life. This is something that's happening worldwide. Yeah. Um, maybe we can start with just the story of uh, Thomas Fitzmaurice, the first heir. Um, mm. So, so uh, do, do you want to try and tell us the story of, of who Thomas Fitzmaurice <laughs> well, was, where he came from? I, I mean, <laughs> he's a fascinating character. I mean, yeah. his, his historical legacy is, is very much seen as a tyrant and seen mm. as somebody who terrorized North Kerry. Um, <laughs> But maybe, maybe in some regards, he, he that's something he had to do. I, I don't know. I mean, you get, you get. It's quite interesting if you go through the Crosby papers, you will get get glimpses into kind of a softer side of him, I suppose. Yeah. Um, he was a man who was born in a very tumultuous period of time. Um, you know, you, you the Glorious Revolution, you had the the Treaty of Limerick, um, conflicting loyalties. Um, they were Protestant, but there was strong Catholic tradition there 
you know, himself and his father fled to France when James II was overthrown. But he returned himself very soon afterwards because he obviously didn't want to lose the family estate. Um, can, can I ask a question about that? Just, just um, from what from what I understood about the the history of the Fitzmorrises, uh, so we can rewind back. So Thomas's uh, great grandfather, also called Thomas, was a was a very garrulous rebel against mm. against the. Um, uh, I won't say. It. Is it the English? We could say he was a rebel against, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, certainly against the new arrivals that come over from mm. the island of England, and um, uh, eventually he he lost, and he had been like the third generation of people who had rebelled, and then his son Patrick, mm. uh, at the age of nine, was taken off him, brought to England, and raised as a Protestant. Right? Isn't that? Am I yeah. right yeah. in saying this? Yeah. So I think that's like uh, important emotional story that this boy of nine or ten was brought to England, taken from his family and raised as a Protestant. And then he returned home as a Protestant, much of his family around him were Catholic still, yeah. uh, and he became Earl of Kerry. And then there was a further outbreak of violence. Would that be? I forget which, which one it was. Uh, and he, he escaped and went back to, to England. Mm. I I I had thought because maybe I'd read um, uh, is it Vaughan's history of Kerry um, mm. that that he never came back to Ireland again once he is once he once he eloped that time yeah I think that he lost his lands mm. and that he was petitioning all his life in London to get his lands back mm-hmm. and then his son William the yeah. father of the guy that we want to talk about yeah he also spent all his life in England, petitioning for his lands. And that yeah. it was only Thomas who got the lands back, the grandson of the of Patrick who, who had escaped. Yeah, I suppose, I, I mean... I, I'm a bit confused by that. Maybe you, you know more about that. that uh, well, to be honest, I don't, because I kind of started with the first Ireland and I moved forward. Um, <laughs> All right, okay. The 17th century seems to have been a time... I, I do know this much. The 17th century was... Um, for the Fitzmaurices and for all those kind of families, it was a time when security of land holdings and all that was constantly thrown into flux, mainly because of what was happening in in in, in Scotland, England, uh, and Ireland, all the different wars, the different outbreaks, different rebellions. Um, you know, you had the Cromwellian, I suppose, upheaval in the mid 17th century, which caused an awful lot of uh, this disruption to rural life, massive famine, depopulation. Agriculture and everything, you know, just decreased for the best part of 20 years. Um, you know, you, you have the famous William Petty, the, the Cromwellian who came to Kerry, to South Kerry, who did all the, the, the stuff around Kinmere. Um, so lands were tainted, lands were constantly put um, under the, the control of the courts, you know. Um, but it, what we tend to forget nowadays is the procedure of taking land off someone and regranting land to someone and all that sort of thing. The, the, the amount of time, the legal jargon, the solicitors, the barristers, I think these things would go on and on for years. And, you know, all the members of the family, for example, who would have had a claim on the estate, like wives, mothers, mother-in-laws, daughters, all those things would all have to be taken into consideration. So, um, and clearly uh, there was a political um, 
imperative for them being in London because unless they were in London and petitioning constantly uh, and keeping their case in front of the powers that be, then they would have lost their lands, you know? Okay. And But the fact is that they didn't. And even the fact that they fled to France, uh, which was a treasonous act, uh, yeah. but then Thomas came back very quickly. Uh, yeah. Again, yeah. suggests there was a political and economic and social motive there to, to come back. So whatever his private allegiances were, yeah. fundamentally it all came down to, okay, this is my state and, you know, I will subscribe to whatever king there is once I um, uh, uh, retain ownership, you know. Yeah. Like they are, like, it's probably as mysterious to people then as it is to us now who we see like NAMA and all these property de- developers and they are, you uh, know, uh, well, it's kind of very ob- oblique and hard to understand. And and and, and then I'm sure it was, you know. It was. It wasn't, it wasn't no a public e- record exactly how. Yeah, there, there was no Thomas emails. Or, yeah, there was no emails or yeah. anything like that. It was all about who you knew and what influence you had. Yeah. Uh, you know. And I mean, that kind of explains his marriage to Anne Petty because, you know, she was the daughter of William Petty and highly influential character, uh, which a lot of money, of course, helped. And um, you can see why he did that. It was, just, it was a political marriage mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to secure him, I suppose, secure him as somebody who was looked upon as slightly dubious. And again, you only get glimpses of this. I mean, I struggled to find material on Thomas in terms of his political allegiances and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I did find something in Trinity College archives um, about the petition to, to, to be secured in his title to his estate, um, uh, which is kind of the back history, which kind of gave me an insight into him going to France and all this. Um, and I often think that there must be more information out there somewhere that could kind of give us a better sense of what happened during the 1690s. And I think probably that experience kind of would explain why he kind of, I suppose, managed Lixnaw and the wider estate with kind of, a, I won't say an iron fist, but certainly he managed it with a sense of, I'm going to put my stamp on this landscape, you know, which of course is what he did. Mm. And why do you think he wanted to put a stamp on the landscape? I think it was, it was to reassert the, after a century of, um, you know, up, upheaval and a century of, losing title and regaining title and uncertainty about title. This was him saying, okay, I am re-establishing the house of Lixnaw as the de facto sovereigns of, of certainly North Kerry. And so while the whole creation of the house and domain and all that had an economic um, purpose, there was also a very strong political and social um, reason to it as well. So um you know, and it's, it's pretty, things haven't changed. I mean, a man today or a woman today is judged by, you know, property and, you know, influence. So what fascinates me always about these characters is you read them, if you read their original letters, which are inevitably written in English, yeah, they could have been written last week. I mean, some of them are an extraordinarily modern kind of mindset, which always fascinates me. Um and again, it always comes down to money, influence, power. <laughs> you know, so things haven't changed. <laughs> and was it was this an expensive sort of process for him? I always sort of wonder, like if he lost the land, how would he have afforded all the losses? How he would have uh, afforded like petitioning over three generations. 
That, as I say, is, is something I have never been able to satisfactorily work out. Mm. Um, how he managed to persuade the powers that be to... I mean, it, it, look at I mean, he basically obviously said, I will support the government and mm. in return confirm me in my title. And mm. I swear allegiance to King William and off he went. And that's yeah. basically putting it in a very blunt terms is what mm. he would have done. And basically how would it have worked uh, politically is then he would have used his power in Kerry to basically influence um, MPs um, elected in Kerry to vote in favour of the government right. when they sat in, in, in College Green here in Dublin. Mm. Uh, and that's basically how the whole political system in Ireland worked throughout the 18th century until the Act of Union. So um, of course, and he would have sat in the Irish House of Lords, and of course, again, you know, along with other lords, um, would have had strong influence in pushing forward government um, programs and government bills. So, you know, and in the 18th century, it was all about corruption and bribery, and um, you know, uh, that's how, the, for example, the, the, the British government bought bought out the. The Irish Parliament in, in 1800, I mean, it was true bribery. So, I mean, you know, it was endemic. And, you know, the, Earl, the first Earl would have been no different to any one of his peers in using whatever means at his disposal to mm. push his own case. And and then if he voted inside of the government, of course, that also helped. Right. So Okay. So so because of his, his status, he was able to kind of accumulate, I don't know, favours and, and help mm. other people. and so and, and, Influence, uh, I guess, isn't influence. it? Like, yeah. like, mm. I thought that I thought a good answer thing is um, it strikes me that there was as much as there was a kind of communism amongst the the courtiers and the and the and the uh, the ordinary people, there was probably a good bit of communism amongst the elites as well. So when one of them lost his position or lost his status or lost his income, others would have helped them out. Am I? Am I? Uh, um, or they would have come in to divide the spoils <laughs> more often well, than not. <laughs> Um, because it is, it is like he, like to to go to parties and to kind of maintain influence. You can't turn up with a with rags. You know what I mean. You kind of you do need some sort of income. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I think a part of the interesting thing about the Earls of Kerry is that the fact that they called Lixnar the court of Lixnar. I mean, the only other person that calls a court is is a king. Oh and, really? Yeah. I mean, you know, come on, the kingdom. You know, the Court of St. James is, is, is still the official name of the, of the, of the British monarchy. Um, so the fact that he was so audacious as to call his house the Court of Lixnaw kind of gives you an insight into how he perceived himself. I mean, there was other houses in Ireland, of course, called Court as well, but um, I think it's the only one I know of in Kerry. Now, probably somebody pulled me up on this, but... Um, yeah, and I mean, again, you just will you get a very strong sense from the surviving documentation that it was a very, very formal household, modelled to a large degree on what you call court etiquette. Um, you know, people had to stand in his presence, take off their hats, you know. Um, apparently, when they dined, only himself and his wife would sit in chairs with armchairs. The rest of the family would sit on footstools and everybody else would be standing, you know. Often families like this, particularly the Earl, would have a day set aside during the week when he would receive petitions from his tenantry. And you can imagine a poor courtier coming in, quaking in his shoes, <laughs> um, presenting a petition to, to, the, to the Lord uh, of all he surveyed, yeah, yeah. you know, and like 
you know, I mean, there, there's a fascinating, I think, a 1733 list of who was employed at Lixnan. It was over 40 or 50 people. And f- between footmen and postilions and house servants and, you know, butlers and housekeepers and gardeners, I mean, it was a f- huge household. Um, uh, you know, even had they had their own chaplain. I mean, there's nobody else in Kerry had their own chaplain. You know, there's very yeah. few in Ireland had their own chaplain. You, you had to get a special dispensation um, from the king to have your own chaplain. Um, you know, is there chaplain. any record at all of the? You know, when you were talking about the petitions, let's say where mm-hmm. you could petition the earl. Is there any records of that anywhere? Of what kind of petitions the uh, the local? Not people not of the Fitzmaurice's themselves, no. no. But you will get a, an idea from other estate collections of what you know petitions would be brought. Like Often the, Godfrey, was, the Godfrey Estate, would there would there yes, been? For example, in the terms of the Godfrey Estate, a lot of the petitions concerned, funnily enough, the loss of livestock. So, for example, if a farmer, say there was a major flood or a major storm or a very bad winter, and the farmer lost four or five of his prize uh, carry cattle, yeah. he would petition the landlord for a reduction in the rent equivalent to the value lost. Um, you'd often see then where crops were destroyed, similarly a petition would go in. Another interesting thing is that a lot of, lot of tenants, again, it, it kind of gives you this insight into the communal nature of mm. rural Ireland. Yeah. You get a group of farmers coming together and petitioning the landlord to build a road um, to access. So in other words, that they would, they would access markets and fairs and be able to sell their produce uh, much, much, much easier. easier. And that kind of is interesting because it meant that the landlord would have to make what was called a presentment to the local assizes, the local kind of courts, the kind of forerunners of the county council yeah. for money to build that road. And so you, you often see things like that. Or for example, Tenants coming together to request um, investment in embankments or ditches or, you know, a multitude of different things. Uh, what's also quite interesting, and I actually I'm looking at another estate collection at the moment, which is also carry related. Um, these are the Leeson Marshals of uh, between Milltown and Gallardon, right up until the 19, about 1905, local tenant farmers would come to the landlord not asking his permission that their son could marry or anything like that, but asking his consent that if, if the son married such and such a person, that they could divide the farm or that was the dowry sufficient or could they secure an interest in the farm. So the fact that that continued right up till the turn of the 20th century is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you, if you rewind then 200 years, you know, Goodness knows what they were petitioning for, you know. Um, I mean, there there is this, there is kind of a, in certain parts of Kerry, kind of a tradition where that you had to request the landlord's permission to marry. Now, I have never come across that myself, mm-hmm. but other historians have references. So again, I I, I have this like uh, anecdote that um, it's an anecdote from from, from travelogue, mm. uh, and it talks to the people in Kerry around 1830 mm. in North Kerry, and there is no there's the ascendancy of have left the area. They're all living in London now. And they use the phrase, our father, we need a father around to take care of us. Mm. And uh, and the, the traveler was like, why? What the, what the fa- they need a father around mm. to take care of them. And um, because at that stage, obviously, a different mindset had entered into the world. But at the time, the Lord was seen as like a head of a, of a yeah. much bigger family. Is that is that kind of... Very, very true. And I think it's something we we... we... 
again, tend to have forgotten about, because uh, again, as I say, going back to the earlier point I made, they always tend to be seen as these oppressive characters. Mm-hmm. But what is quite interesting as well, and I see this quite a lot in what I've looked at, you will see letters from people, and it's clearly that they're appealing to the Lord to, to intervene or to do something on their behalf. So there was this kind of paternalistic culture. I mean, it was part and parcel of aristocratic life. It was kind of like kind of part of the social compact. In other words, the landlord owns the land, he lets it to the tenant, the tenant pays the rent, and in return, the landlord looks after his tenant's interests. Mm. That kind of was the general idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, it didn't always work out like that, as we know. But um, it is fascinating when you get glimpses into to that kind of paternalistic culture that went on. And everything from it, like, and of course, we, we mustn't forget, like, it was the landlords were the millionaires of the 18th and 19th century in rural Ireland. They were the people of influence and power. They are the people who built the roads, built the towns, built the canals, laid out the gardens, employed all these people, albeit on the rents from their tenants. But they were the main drivers of kind of, I suppose, modernization. But in order for them to do that, they needed the cooperation of others. So it was never a question of, I'm going to just do what I like and to help with you. It never worked like that in reality. You, you, you always will see in the documentation compromise or a buyout or, you know, a lengthy court case. And what's fascinating to me is everyone seems to think the law was on the side of the landlord. And yes, it was skewed in his favour, definitely. But if you were a tenant who had means and you were able to apply a good barrister, um, you could drag on a case for 20, 30 years in the courts. That is, you know, so, um, you know, there's a lot more, I suppose the culture of the 18th and early 19th century is a lot more complex than we generally think. Can I ask a question? These people uh, petitioning, because, you know, as theatre makers, we're composing a scene Mm. here. Mm. Uh, Were they, like, um, was it just the big farmers you, you, you told us about earlier who were had more a than likely yeah it wasn't really the cottiers no. or the or, uh, people with three chickens um no no i mean i suppose you have to ask yourself why would they um the world of lixnaw was as far removed from their reality as you could possibly imagine you know it, it would be those who had a vested interest in something in land essentially um who would have petitioned um, now, you, may, you might have had an occasional thing where a group of, I suppose, poor farmers who kind of work together as a communal body would, you know, get their parish priest to write a letter to the Lord asking him for permission to, to, to cut turf or cut trees or okay. you know, dig such and such a thing. But more often than not, it would be the what I call the middling to big farming class that would be the, the petitioners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what's quite interesting about rural Ireland is that we, we, and we tend to forget this, is the famine didn't wipe out the rich, didn't wipe out the upper middlemen or the middling farmers or big farmers. It wiped out those underneath them. And there's a whole swathe of Irish culture that virtually disappeared in 10 years. And, you know, you get very, very few glimpses into that kind of culture. Well, I've come across, personally speaking, very few glimpses into that culture that existed um, beneath, I suppose, the, the, the farming class. And it's quite clear from collections I've gone through, the landlord rarely had anything or had any direct involvement with um, the poor, with the exception of if there was an outbreak of cholera or sickness, then you would see 
uh, often would see uh, the landlord um, either building a kind of a, I suppose, a rudimentary hospital or providing medical care, rudimentary medical care or something like that. But that wasn't particularly because he was interested in, in, in saving the lives of the poor, just more to prevent the contagion from spreading. So it is. So, um, but again, it, it varies. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to generalize. So what sort of proportion of the population do you think around Lixna at the time would have been those small farmers, those cottiers, laborers? What sort oh, of proportion? Is it the vast majority of the people? Or absolutely. It, yeah, it is. I, yeah. It is, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. At the time of the years, the, the working, the people who till the soil day to day, yeah, would it be? I mean, what is quite interesting is, again, I can only speculate in terms of Lixnaw, but I'm what is interesting if you look at the Crosby stuff, the Crosby estate, which was adjacent to Lixnaw, is that he, the the Lord Brandon, Brandon, Lord Brandon, had, um, Morris Crosby, had, again, similar estate system to Lixnaw. He let his townlands to middlemen. Um, which mostly Protestant, nearly all Protestant, I suspect, um, middlemen. And they in turn let to kind of biggish farmers. But what's quite interesting is you see some of the middlemen had huge, massive herds of cattle, like three or 400 head of cattle mm-hmm. that they would basically farm on that particular, or they would, I suppose, not farm that particular, they would, they would what's the word I'm looking for? Raise them, raise them on that townland. And you know, it, it goes back to the thing then, like if if he was raising all those areas of cattle on that particular townland, was that entire townland devoted just to to cattle raising? Or were there people living on it growing cereal and soil? You know, again, it, there's a lot there that we don't know mm. um, how the land was managed. Um, <sighs> so... I mean, they could have been. They could have been her. I'm just speculating here, but like absolutely, people Herd who were herders who were who yeah, would employ to move them around because yeah. mm, yeah. 300 in a townland. I mean, you can squeeze them in between between your crops. I imagine if they're managed, if they're if they've got somebody managing to go. Yeah, but you can imagine like one person owned 300 head of cattle, and mm-hmm. um, which kind of gives you an insight into, of course, fattening fattening bullocks and livestock was the big, big, big um, export business in early 18th century Kerry, not so much dairy, which only kind of came more prevalent after the turn or the middle of the century. Um, so fattening livestock was kind of the big, big industry, rural industry. Um, and then growing cereals was a big industry. We, we seem to forget, of course, it was probably slightly warmer back then, I don't know, but um, the, the, there was a lot more cereal production in Kerry back then than there would have been in, in modern times. So, uh, you know, uh, why do you say it would be warmer back then? Is there any indication that the, the weather was I, yeah, I different? Think, I think the weather fluctuates, fluctuated over the centuries. So it has, yeah. And is there an indication that weather was slightly warmer back in the 18th century? I couldn't be 100% sure about that, but certainly there are records indicating that the weather fluctuated over the last five or 600 years. So there was particular interesting, there was particular cold spells that yes, particularly yes. Northern Europe decimated decimated whole countries mm-hmm. uh, because it was so cold. But uh, the, the hot spells perhaps would have been would have been around long enough to fundamentally change what was being grown. Yeah, exactly. Wow, exactly. Yeah. wow interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Hope and of course, back. we we also <laughs> had a great we also had a great famine in care in Ireland in the seventeen forties, I think. 
And yes, we read about that. Yeah, yeah. And which is quite interesting, again, because, again, that, some historians claim, was more devastating than the 1841, 1845 famine, which, as we know, was, was fairly horrific. Mm. As a proportion um, of population, yeah, I think yeah. I think it was more, but like by, yeah. by pure numbers, obviously, yeah. the 18th. Yeah, 18th it was less. Mm. Um, and again, we have very little insight into what happened to rural society then, because if, if there was such a a shift uh, and change in the 1840s, you can imagine 100 years before that, how it must have decimated rural society if there was yeah. if it was that extensive. But we have very little, there's very little historical evidence of what exactly happened in Kerry. So it was. And at that time, it was because of the weather was the main inf- influence. The weather was so cold, it decimated all the crops. So it was so, um, as opposed to the potato. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's it's uh, I just think it's wild that we have we have no like there's so much life, so much human life that we know nothing about, you know, in that era. And uh, yeah. and we talk about history like we we understand it like and we're like, you know, people even say things like, I'm proud of my history or whatever. And you've no idea no. what it was like for, for so many people, for so so many people. Um You you don't, you see, and like, you know, it's very easy to generalize it and kind of separate it into the Lord and his manor and the middleman and the big farmer and the cottage mm. and all this, but that's a very simplistic view of rural life. How society functioned on a day-to-day basis? How did people marry? How did, you know, how was land divided? You know, what was the role of women? You know, the, birth, the death rate amongst children was so high. All these things we know, we, we get glimpses of them, but mm-hmm. get no real sense of what went on. Like how, how, for example, the Irish language was that spoken in like Snow. Um, obviously, it must have been. And there's an interesting comment by one of the the, the Earl's agents where he talks about all the Catholics, all the Protestants of like Snow Parish. And um, because there was no proper Protestant church and no rector, they all had lapsed into popery um, Catholicism, <laughs> in other words. Um, yeah. You know, and if they had lapsed into popery, then they also obviously lapsed into to, to the native culture as well. Mm. You know, so that, yeah. that um, you know, and the question I'm always asked about is about the la- Irish language. Did landlords read it or did they understand it and did they whatever? And the evidence is sketchy, but what evidence I have seen suggested, yes, they, they had enough fluency to understand, you know, well, they had to have fluency to understand what was going on. Um, because obviously people were coming to petition them. They weren't coming to petition them in English. It had to be in Irish. So there was either translators involved, translators hired, or they had a basic fluency in the language. And again, I can only speak from the Godfrey and Lisa Marshall papers um, you will get the occasional Irish words, which always amuses me, thrown into a letter uh, to describe something that only an Irish word could. Um, and you'll also see, which fascinated me recently, I discovered that um, amongst the first uh, Irish uh, language school books, um, the Godfrey children had them in the 1860s and 70s, which shows the whole concept of this complete divide between the big house and the native culture mm. uh, on its head because clearly they were learning and these are grammar books and you can see their, their handwritings in it mm. and all this sort of thing so again it, you know every time you think you have something kind of in your head going oh this is how it was something will come up and completely throw it 
throw it on its head, basically. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. But as you say, Richard, we know so little about um, rural life in, in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I mean, our sensibility of rural life nowadays is very much based on what we heard from our parents, grandparents, mm. and what they heard from their great-grandparents. Yeah, yeah. It's conditioned by the War of Independence and the Civil War, even stretching back to the Land League um, of the 1880s. Uh, and then if we go back far enough, I remember old people when I was growing up who could remember their grandparents telling them about the famine. But beyond the famine, that's it. You don't, you go back as far as there and that's, the rest of it is kind of a, just, it's not part of our consciousness. Mm. So it's not, you know. Can I can I ask a question then? Because uh, I was reading Orn um, Ruel Sullivan, the, the poet, you know, mm-hmm. and um, he kind of gives some glimpses because he's alive around the yeah. 1740s, yeah. 50s, 60s. And uh, he's saying like, because he was known, notorious playboy. And um, he was often oh, getting, uh, getting girls into bed and so forth. And, um, but his rebuke was people complained to him. Obviously, it's an Irish, and I, I, can't, I can't say exactly, but he, he said, people rebuke me for, for uh, my interest in women. Um, but he says, they, but when they see a lord do it or, or a gentry do it, you know, it's totally accepted. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I don't know what I'm trying to say with that, but it <laughs> it speaks to kind of uh, an attitude yeah. towards sex that that seems very different to what a 19th century Ireland or oh yeah, early yeah. 19th century Ireland idea of rural life as this repressive. Uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, our, 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 I suppose our sensibilities towards towards um, sex and all that is really a Victorian. Um, creation I suppose maybe and also you have to also factor in the re-establishment of the Catholic Church as this very powerful force in Irish society which it really wasn't up until the 1870s I mean it was there but it hadn't that doctrinal kind of uh, severity about it if you know what I mean it was often a compromise between kind of local beliefs and what the church said Um, so kind of very much how we view matters like that are kind of very much informed by that narrative, yeah. which if you step back into this 18th century is not there. And so can we um, imagine that there would have been common law, like almost more like how we behave now, you know, like people live together for a while and maybe for some yeah, I, to stop I, or, or have children with different partners or, or like, was there yeah, a I mean, if you look, if you go back to the earlier surviving um, church records now, I mean, they're, they're mostly Church of Ireland records for Kerry, um, but they, they exist from the 17, I don't know, 80s onwards. You'll see a lot of illegitimates in them. So clearly there was, a, you know, a lot going on in rural society, um, yeah. you know, um, but I, it's not an area of history I'm overly familiar with the whole social social world yeah, of the. It's it's hard to, hard to uh, it would be hard. Yeah. To I mean, I, I can speak for the aristocracy and the gentry. Yes, I mean there was a certain level of, you know, you marry for wealth, you marry for position, you do not marry for love, and it was very rare to find an aristocratic marriage that was actually faithful or you know based on love if it was based in love often it was they were ostracized by the rest of the family because of course she and it was always she was blamed um had no money or she wasn't of the proper status or whatever um 
So, and of course, the first hurdle was a, was a notorious uh, womanizer. Um, I didn't put that into the article, but he oh, was yeah. no he was known as having a roving eye. And um, there's a very music, there's a very <laughs> music anecdote by I think Lord Kinmare's uh, aunt that she heard he had suddenly reappeared at church. Um, I don't know where was that now, was it in Trilly or something? And she said, well, it can't have been for prayers. It must have been because he wanted to oogle some young lass um, sitting in the, in the, in the, in the audience. And, uh, and then, of course, when his wife died, um, he was reputed, and I, I can't remember what age he was, but he was well advanced. Um, he was going to marry a, a very young, uh, new uh, wife, um, but he died before he could take that into effect. And, of course, the family were horrified. And um, and then, of course, his son, the second Earl, I mean, he went through the whole farce of a fake marriage and um, then said, pretended it didn't happen. Then the courts ruled it did happen. And um, then she conveniently died. Then he married a woman who the family didn't like. <laughs> so, um, you know, and she, this particular wife then, she was there when the second Earl died, and I think it was in 1747 or thereabouts. And she basically abandoned Nixna, and that's kind of when the, the whole decline fell in. And then you had the third Earl, who, of course, married a woman much, much older than him. And um, again, it has been suggested to me by some that maybe he's, um, it wasn't so much interested in the females sex he was, but more interested in the male. But again, that's only various rumors about him. So mm-hmm. there was a very kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, lausch, I suppose, for want of a better word, kind of attitude to, to, to sex and matrimony and all that. And I mean, if you look at the second Earl's will, I think he mentions four, if not five, illegitimate children in it and mistresses. And um, there's all sorts of scandals associated in local folklore as well with the Earl's which, interestingly enough, passed right down to the 1830s, 40s, whenever, right up to the present century, when these, or last century, when these were collected by the Folklore Commission. So, so can you tell us some of those folkloric stories? Oh, I mean, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head yeah. now, but I remember looking at the, at the time and thinking to myself, no, that they're completely perfect. <laughs> I, know, yeah, uh, but, uh, but like, are, are, oh, they, are they available? How would I find them? Because I, I, um, Yeah, I think if you go on, to, I think they're held by UCD. Um, you can go online and you can search them. You can just search okay. by, 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 by words. But um, I do remember coming across some articles, you know, like insinuating that the first Earl might have had an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, yeah, that's highly, highly unlikely, you know. Um, but I think he was, they, they, they kind of accused him of every, every possible evil, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. But I mean, I, I, it does strike me that, that, that this, like, you know, like, because in the pictures, they're like authority and they're all like very serious mm. and all that. But like, they probably were just going around like, like perverts. <laughs> they're together, um, the perverts. <laughs> some, some of them were and some of them weren't. I mean, it, 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 like, it's, <laughs> appearances were very important to them. So, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and the former portraits that they commissioned and which portray a certain image that they wanted to convey. Um, and, and elevated their status and, you know, their costume and the fashion and, you know, even the background indicated their sensibilities, whether they preferred an authoritarian type of government as opposed to kind of a more liberal, all this sort of stuff. You know, you can read lots into their portraits. Um, but behind the scenes, you know, as I say, they got married, not for love. They got married because of politics, because of, you know, elevation in society, 
because of family relations, family connections, strengthening power, rarely for love. So once, you know, the Countess of Kerry produced an heir and a spare, she, that was her job done. And there was kind of a kind of a general sense that, well, if, if the heir wanted to take his satisfactions elsewhere, then that was just kind of the way it was done. Mm. But it only applied to men. Uh, women did not and could not have that luxury because, of course, if they had a child who wasn't uh, a true blood heir or child, that would be a huge scandal. Mm. So whereas men pretty much had... You know, wide discretion. Um, the, the same did not apply to, to aristocratic women. And, and like, for example, I mean, what's quite interesting, I only discovered recently, I was looking through something else, I think there was a collection in the public record office in Northern Ireland about the Kilmare family, where the, one of the heirs of Kilmare was accused of rape and um, in London, which I have never before seen in any historical record of this. Oh. And basically they bought off the, the, the victim. Wow. Um, a group of friends came along and they clubbed together and they basically bought her off so that it wouldn't go to court and the whole thing was hushed up. Oh my um, God. So that'll give you an indication of how influence and power and money, no more, I suppose, than, than, than today. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It doesn't, say, it doesn't seem anything different from what happens today. Well, well what's revealed about, let's say, Harvey Weinstein culture or kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, now you will come across characters then like Anne Petty, the, the wife of the first heir, clearly was a f- pretty formidable woman by all accounts. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I think was able to manage them to a point and stand on her own two feet. And also, I think, if I remember correctly, the marriage settlement was quite clear that she would have had control over her own income, which was a considerable, it, it was very rare that women would have had that. So maybe there was some inkling, even at the time of their marriage, that the Earl would be troublesome. The first Earl would be a troublesome character, um, and then like you can, you can. It all again depends on the nature of, of the of the marriage and, and the people involved. I mean, mm-hmm. I can speak from, for example, the Godfrey collection. The the first baronet, Sir William Godfrey, married one of the Blennerhassets of, of Ballyseedy in Tralee, and and basically he had like. 12, 13 children by her. And she clearly was unwell, maybe from quite early in the marriage, didn't particularly like her husband. He took up with a lady 30 years younger than him, who happened to be a distant cousin, but she was a Catholic, um, daughter of the local butcher. And he proceeded to have something like 15 children with her. So he, between wow. the two wives, he had, I don't know, 25, between 25 and 30 children. And um, you had this interesting parallel where the wife, his official wife and his children would live in the big house. And then outside the domain gates was his mistress with all his illegitimate children. And, uh, and eventually he had the first wife, um, Agnes, Hassett. he discovered her he discovered her in a rather indelicate situation with the, not the footman now, but the, one of the stable boys. And basically she was locked up uh, in her father's house at Valley oh City. She was banished from, from Middletown. Wow. And she died in 1799. And three years later, he married his mistress. And of course, that caused outrage in, mm. in not only in the family, but in Kerry society. It was not the done thing to do. Because he legitimized uh, all those children yeah, then. Yeah. He? No, he didn't he, he couldn't he couldn't retro legitimize, but he did have some more children with her who were legitimate children. And okay. eventually the, they his his heir, the second baronet, 
um, bought them out, basically, bought them out and told them, I'll give you money to leave Milktown and leave Ireland and leave Kerry, just get out of our sight, which is what happened. Wow. And, yeah, but then you compare that marriage, then the, the first Sir William and his son, Sir John, the, the, Godfrey, the second baronet, he married this woman called Eleanor Cromie from, from the north. It was a love affair. He met her when he was a tour of militia in 1796. And she was this formidable character that basically came to Middletown, stood up to her father-in-law and his mistress and all his illegitimate children, managed the estate in her husband's absence. And her letters survive, a lot of them. And they are a formidable insight into the intellectual um, world, I suppose, of a early late 18th, early 19th century woman in Kerry. You know, her interests, her fascination with, with helping the poor, helping local women in the village find some kind of a job. You know, she built a school, she established all these charities. So you see, the point I was making earlier, one generation can do one thing and then the next generation can be, can be the complete opposite. And, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to generalize about these people. So yeah, yeah. But I'm sure the same applied to the, to the Earls of Kerry. That, you know, that, as I say, Anne Petty was a formidable character. Her successor, Gertrude Kerry, the second wife of the second Earl, was apparently quite a weak character. The wife of the third Earl, we don't know really much about her, um, except that she was much older than him. Um, but, for example, if we look at the Crosby family next door, the heir's daughter was again another very interesting woman, and then of course was the famous lady Arabella Dini, um, which I presume you've you've heard about Richard, the woman who established. I, I've heard about it, maybe. Hospital. Yeah, the lads haven't. Yeah, uh, she yeah. set up the Magdalen laundries. No, That's I know the right. Name, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you see again, like where did that come from? Was it through the influence of their mother? Was it through the influence of seeing their father being this kind of tyrant? Was it a rebellion against it? You know, it. it, it you get all these kind of fascinating kind of insights into to 18th century high high society, uh, but unfortunately, because the written record is basically about these people, you don't really get an insight into what happened amongst the lower classes. Mm. And I think that's the big, big, empty, I suppose, vacuum <laughs> in terms of Irish history. Well, look, this is our project. This is what the this is what we're taking on is to try to. So could you explain to me now? I, I've done all the talking now. Could you tell me what, what, <laughs> what, what, what I suppose your your plan is or what? what? Well, our plan at the moment is, 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 is frankly to put together a play and um, an important part of that for like any theatre makers is research and, and learning about our topic and understanding it as best we can. And mm. uh, at the moment we're actively doing that we're trying to read and we're trying to speak to people like yourself, John. And uh, and we're just trying to get a kind of a, a sense of what life was like at this time. Mm. And also to kind of see what room there is for our own imagination and our own kind of, uh, you know, speculation, um, which I think yeah. we, we are able to do. And, and not to speculate in a stupid way. We're trying to be able to speculate in a, in a, in a possible way, what's the right word there? In a speculative, realistic, in a realistic way, yeah. Well, I suppose, I suppose one legitimate of the words, way, in a legitimate yeah. way, yeah, yeah. Well, and, I suppose the, the story of Fitzmaurice is, does give you a space to to kind of, I suppose, you know, create a kind of a, a I won't say create a world, but mm. it allows the room for imagination because because the records are scant enough, 
yeah. because you have to kind of, you know, infer a lot of the things mm-hmm. and kind of assume a lot of things and, you know, try and figure out what their motives were. It does allow the mind to go, wow, what was the reasoning behind this? And, like the imagination behind it or the, you know, the resident detra behind it. Like it, 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 it definitely lends itself to a kind of a Game of Thrones plot, I always think, you know, <laughs> because there's so much that went on there. And um, I often think, you know, the, the community in Lake Snow and North Kerry in particular, mm-hmm. you know, they're missing a kind of an opportunity here. Now, and your play might actually help reverse, reverse that. You know, they have their own real life kind of um, saga, dynastic saga that went on there you know with intrigue and infighting and backbiting and conquest and confiscation and Mm. you know all sorts Uh, and um, you know I I know there's a new book coming out on the family shortly Uh, is that Kay Cable is is she is that being printed now or is she it is and Kay Kay would also be worth if you haven't spoken to her already we're going to get onto her now and definitely see if she yeah I think uh, and she probably would give you a very good insight into the culture, the kind of aristocratic culture that the Earls lived in. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, and then like, of course, you know, you, you'll also get other people then who give you, a, you know, a different kind of local interpretation of what the Fitzmaurice's were, what Lixnaw means. And are you basing the play in the period of the first and second era or is it kind of later? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great time to, to make it, take a start off point. I, I, I feel it's either, it's always either, let's say, 1748 or, or 1776. I'm kind of altered in between those, yeah. those dates. So 1748, let's say, is when the when the castle is still there and are, are mm. operating and uh, very much alive. And then 1776, um, it's it's already gone into disrepair. And it's kind of an it's kind of an it's a good time internationally because like that's when United States is. Um, that's right. Uh, of course, you have that connection there too. There's the a US. connection there. Yeah. yeah. So we are looking and we're trying to really imagine how that transition takes place, you know, and what that mm. might have meant for, for people, um, which mm. in many ways I, I, I would venture was not great. Like the, the, the family leaving the area and the court disestablishing itself was part of a nexus of events that like didn't help rural life in Ireland. No, it didn't. And I mean, the, 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 there's a comment, I think, by Morris Fitzgerald, he was one of the knights of Kerry, I think it was the 18th night of Kerry, sometime around 1820 or thereabouts, 1814 maybe, where he says that the biggest, single biggest curse of, of rural life in Ireland was the absentee landlord. Mm-hmm. Because he said landlords in residence were there to deal with, because they were like the social welfare, they were like the employment, they were like the, I suppose they were like their county council all rolled into one. And, you know, if we had an absentee landlord, often you had an agent who was only interested in the money. Mm-hmm. And whereas a resident landlord, if they were of a kind of a, a decent enough character, they took a genuine interest in in the community and in improving things and then, you know, investing money there and employing people and all this. And so when one of their own class said, that, you know, one of the biggest ills of Kerry was the fact that so much of it was governed or ruled by absentee landlords, that gives you a pretty good idea of, you know, but number one, the importance of a resident landlord, but number two, how widespread absentee, absenteeism was, mm. you know. So um, I think that the fact that Lixnaw was effectively dismantled from 1750 onwards was a major economic blow to, to North Kerry, um, aside from the fact that the number of people he employed, you know, and the, the 
economic contribution of the household, but also, I suppose, the status of Lixnaw itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of just basically, you know, effectively disappeared off the map. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, whereas I think the man who bought a lot of the estate, uh, what's his name, here, um, the Earl of Listowel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's focused very much on Listowel and, and developing Listowel. Yeah. And he had no interest in Linux now. Yeah, and also like when when people like those capitalists kind of came in, they ran things on a very strict profit basis. So if somebody comes in and says, "I've I, I lost three cows," they're like, "Tough, tough." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've yeah. got another fella; he'll pay me the rent. So you just do it or don't, you know. And yeah. this this, uh, this is this is not so good for ordinary people's lives. <laughs> yeah. I would venture, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, listen, it's, it's, sir. It's, it's, We've loads to talk about, but we'd we'd love to get talk to you again, maybe if if that was possible. (laughs) Really, really deep, really deep dive the next time. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'll leave it there. So listen, I'll talk to you again sometime. Looking forward to seeing this. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks, thanks a million, John. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye Bye -bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.